Welcome to Pod HD, the podcast that explores academic research at universities all over the UK and Europe. My name is Guy Kiddy. In this episode, we look at parasites and politics. Maureen Williams at Trinity College Dublin is investigating the ways in which environmental change might alter parasite activity in aquatic ecosystems. My second guest, Craig McAngus, is a researcher at the University of Aberdeen and studies the politics of devolution in Scotland. He talks to me about what's really going on north of the border, both in terms of the EU and the possibility of a second independence referendum. But let's start off by diving into a freshwater pool with Maureen Williams. I'm really interested in how parasites kind of cause bigger changes than the changes that you see on the individual. So we know that parasites can affect behavior and can take energy from an individual host, but I'm really interested in what happens when you have a group of hosts and, and you know, what is the net energy loss there or what is the net behavior change leading to? So the knock-on effects and the big picture effects, that's where I'm really interested and where I'm really excited about things. So I kind of design all of my work around those types of questions. Okay, so perhaps you could just give us a flavor of some of the ways in which, or some of the research that's been done on how parasites affect individual organisms. I mean, obviously they have the potential to kill off organisms. That's an obvious one. Um, (laughs) They can also also affect behavior in in, in specific ways. What are some of the other ways in which um, parasitism can, can affect a host other than just killing it outright? So one of the most famous examples would be Toxoplasmosa gondii, which is the one, so it cycles between cats and rodents normally. Um, humans can be a, a paratenic host, which is a non-target host that sometimes get infected. Um, but we know between the cats and the rodents that when the rodents become infected, the rodent is what we call an intermediate host. So the parasite can't reach maturity in its intermediate host, but it still needs to live in the intermediate host to develop. The parasite is trying to get to what we call the definitive host, which is the final stage host where the parasite can grow to maturity, start laying eggs, start reproducing. Um, And for this system, it'd be the cat. Um, So it's in the parasite's best interest to get the rodent to go toward the cat. And they've demonstrated very well that not only do the rodents, when they get infected with Toxoplasmosa, go um, become less fearful of their predators, but they will occasionally go towards their predators. And that's a pretty drastic example. There's also examples of um, certain parasites that infect snails, and they actually cause the snail to look more like a caterpillar. And again, the parasite is targeting a bird final host. And then the system that I work in is actually one of the better studied examples of these, where um, I work on gamerous, which are small freshwater amphipods. They are closely related to shrimp, things like that. And you find them pretty ubiquitously. You find them in Ireland, you find them in the UK, you find them in France, Germany, the US, uh, anywhere you go pretty much, they're gonna be there. Okay, so so that's that's on the individual level, but you're now yeah. looking to try and fill in some gaps on the community level because, I mean, you would presume there is some sort of regulatory mechanism in place that once a population becomes infected to a certain degree and a certain percentage or proportion of that population has been affected or killed off or caused to behave in a certain way, then nature kicks in and, and prevents 
the, the population from from killing itself off completely. I mean, is that what you're looking at uh, in, in to some degree now in, as part of your research? Exactly. Yeah. So we're really interested then in the kind of mechanisms that would control something like that so that you don't entirely wipe out your intermediate host population. You still need the intermediate host. You still need your final hosts. And there are mechanisms that, that keep that in check. A lot of it has to do with the way in which the parasite spawns. So your chances of getting infected as an intermediate host are on the lower end. You also have some intermediate host immunity. So some intermediate hosts are able to clear infections where others aren't, and that sort of keeps things in check. And between kind of those sorts of mechanisms, um, we've reached, a lot of systems reached balance. So you have this co-evolution where everything is constantly playing off each other, and you kind of reach um, not necessarily an equilibrium, but a shifting equilibrium. And what I'm really, really interested in is how things like climate change or increasing or variable temperature could shift that balance. So if climate warms, are we tipping the scales in one direction? Are we causing things to come off the rails in any way? Or are you know we going to be able to eliminate certain parasites as a result of that? And we're only starting to look at a lot of those questions. And it's a pretty exciting field to be in. Uh, and what are some of the things that you've you've uncovered so far? Because with my fairly rudimentary scientific knowledge, even I know that increased energy in a system tends to increase activity uh, being to a point, unless your chemistry gets too high and then you start killing off enzymes. But, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I presume that is a factor. So, you know, as I say, basic scientific knowledge, environments are warming, increased activity. Is that something that you've detected and, and perhaps some of the other things that you're looking at? Right. So I work with these amphipods and whether or not they're going towards duck predators. So it's mostly ducks and waterfowl that are the predators in the system that are the final hosts. And we found that gamerous at lower temperatures, if you're infected, you're much more likely to go towards your predator. And that holds true as temperature increases. However, However, as temperature increases, in general, you're more likely to be moving towards your predator. You're more likely to be taking these risky moves up in the water column, away from your safe hiding places. And so um, we predict that in as temperature warms, there will be more gamerous in general that will be eaten, and your chance of being infected as a waterfowl is going to go up significantly. So that could have a lot of knock-on effects, and we're, we're just now kind of getting to the heart of that. So it's it's kind of exciting to see that um, the effects of the parasite hold true, at least in this system, no matter what temperature you're at, but that at higher temperatures, just generally, you're right, more is happening, more is moving. And so it'll be really interesting to see the balance that gets, um, that everything settles out there. And I'm kind of designing further experiments to look at those sorts of things now. And obviously, you're doing an awful lot of work in the field. And... It must be hard enough to look at organisms in isolation uh, when, when considering these factors. But when you've got several, you're looking at a whole community, a whole ecosystem, and there are several variables involved that could it, it affect experimental outcomes. So what are some of the challenges that you, you face in eliminating those potentially confounding variables so you can try and make sure that what you're experimenting for and analysing is actually um, what you're trying to detect? <laughs> Yeah, that's a big, big problem in this type of research and kind of one that we've only been able to 
um, have the computer power to start to tackle. So now that we have theoretical understanding of what might be happening, we can start to test these things experimentally. And so one of the things that I really focus on is running experiments that are similar from very controlled laboratory conditions out to the field. So we run, you know, those very, very controlled minimalist experiments on individuals. And then we take those findings and see if based on those patterns, what we would predict is what's actually happening in the field. We also run different types of experiments in the field. So we have some more controlled experiments. So those are things like you take a bag full of decomposing leaves and you introduce animals and keep that separate, but within the water. Um, we have more open areas. So you mark out a patch and you watch what happens within that patch to see if infection levels change or stay the same. And so you kind of, by piecing all of these pieces together, are able to put together a big, broad picture. And you have a much stronger case then for your mechanisms behind what you're actually seeing. Okay. And, and if it transpires, if there is conclusive evidence that warming temperatures, warming conditions are having a detrimental effect on this, on the degree of parasitism. So the, these intermediate intermediate hosts you mentioned are uh, becoming kamikaze beings and heading for their, <laughs> their, their, their their ducks their ducks and fowl predators. What are some of the uh, solutions that you might be able to employ? So it it is a a really interesting question and um, kind of one of the areas that I focus on as well is then, you know, if your intermediate hosts are getting eaten all the time, what happens to all of the jobs that they would be doing? Because then essentially their role in the ecosystem is not being filled. Um, so to combat something like that, you could potentially um, try to increase the levels of similar organisms in the system. So you'd hope that there'd be some compensation there. But it might be things like providing food subsidies to the predators that are no longer able to feed themselves on the intermediate hosts. It might be just carefully monitoring things or giving anti-helminthics, which are a type of drug that are not normally used in these systems but could potentially be employed. There's a few potential options. Um, we're just not really sure what the best of those options is going to be yet because, like I said, we're just not sure how everything is going to pan out. But as we get a better understanding, we'll be able to develop, develop those management methods a bit more and hopefully combat some of the potential negative effects. Is uh, TCD, Trinity College Dublin, a, a particular world center for zoology uh, and this field of study? Is there any particular reason why you're doing your research there or... Well, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the video game The Last of Us. It's uh, pretty popular these days, and it's actually based on this idea of behavior modification. And um, you know, kind of came across the idea, thought it was absolutely fascinating. You know, especially because it's being dragged into pop popular culture nowadays. And so um, I kind of had an idea that I wanted to work on parasites and pot potentially parasite behavior because it's fascinating. And one of my supervisors, Celia Holland, is a very well-known parasitologist. She's based here at Trinity. And she had on her website that she was looking for grad students. And I got lucky enough to get a grant to come over. And we're actually developing our parasitological capabilities quite a lot. Um, we had a Nobel Prize winner two years ago. So Bill Campbell was an alumnus of TCD and he won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work on ivermectin, which is used to treat lymphatic filariasis, 
um, which is and and river blindness, which both of which are just absolutely horrible diseases. And so there's a long tradition of parasitology here, and it's a pretty exceptional uh, history of parasitology here. And uh, living in Ireland is just great. So I, I think I'm pretty lucky to be able to be here and to work with such a good group. You know, the group is just expanding off the charts right now. We have people working on badger parasites and fish parasites and <laughs> all, all sorts of interesting lines of questions. We have some human-based work and, you know, it's, it's just an exciting place to be right now. Thanks again to Maureen Williams there. Now on to Craig McAngus. We begin with me trying to get my head around why Brexit apparently a red rag to the Scottish bull, has done seemingly nothing for the Scottish independence movement. Brexit doesn't appear to have given the independence cause a boost in Scotland, which implies possibly one of one of two things, either that the Scottish electorate wasn't very interested in the European Union all along, uh, or indeed that those who voted for independence also voted to leave the, the European Union. So, So perhaps you could sort of unpick what's going on in terms of the electorate in Scotland and how they're thinking, uh, or at least what the polls say, and why, in contrast to that, the SNP, Nicola Sturgeon and friends are banging the EU drum very, very strongly and, uh, and pushing as hard as possible for Scotland to be considered in terms of a closer EU arrangement um, post, post-Brexit. Well, I think the, one of the, the interesting things, as you, as you pointed out, was the lack of the boost um, that we expected to potentially see um, if Scotland voted to remain in the EU and the UK voted to leave, which is exactly what happened. And the vote was 62%, so it was a strong endorsement of Scotland's place within uh, the EU. Um, so the SNP, SNP played up on this. They had a, a clause in their, a section in the manifesto saying, well, you know, it would be grounds to hold a second independence referendum. But interestingly, if we go to now, the SNP, the SNP's language on Europe has actually softened quite significantly, in the sense that the SNP, yes, are still a pro-EU party, and their their policy is to uh, promote an independent Scotland within the EU, independence in Europe, which is a long-standing um, slogan and, and and philosophy that goes back to the 1980s. Um, but they've softened that quite significantly, so we've got to sort of look at what's happened in the meantime between sort of May last year and now. Um, There was a bit of a, not a surge, but a a significant jump in support for independence after or around the time of the referendum. And then things have settled back down to almost where they were in the sense that we're still finding polls telling us, well, the split in Scotland is 55-45 in favour of the union, which is exactly where it was at the actual referendum in 2014. So I think... We've got to look at a few different things here. We have to sort of unpick the fact that not everyone who voted for independence voted to remain in the EU. There's quite a significant section, perhaps up to a third, of the pro-independence vote which voted to leave the EU. Now, the SNP, despite the fact it's now a pro-EU party, has historically, in the past, um, been very Eurosceptic. And if we go back to the 1970s, when we had the, the referendum in '75 on membership of the um, the EC, DC as it was then, um, the SNP campaigned against it. 
they didn't see the point of leaving one union and joining another. What was the point of holding having sovereignty then? Um, so there is a Eurosceptic tradition within the SNP. It hasn't really manifested itself in a popular sense or in a in a in a mainstream sense in the party in recent years. But there is a section of its uh, voter base that that would definitely be quite Eurosceptic because of that notion of losing Scottish sovereignty to another union. Um, and, and why did and why over that over the, the period from those Eurosceptic years in the seventies to now has the SNP SNP become this pro pro Europe party? Is it sheer pragmatism? Uh, is it is it sort of setting setting the ground for possible independence um, and having a in the European Union a essentially a funding stream uh, to replace the one that Scotland would lose if it left the United Kingdom? Is it is that too cynical and sweeping a, a, an assessment to make, or is that part of it? Uh, well, the reasons, the basic reason for the SNP changing its position um, was essentially the thinking that the European Union provided a platform for Scotland to almost upload its sovereignty, to pool its sovereignty with other small countries in Europe, such as perhaps the Dutch. The, the, the Luxembourgish, the Belgians, the, on that sort of model, um, and and take part in in a, in a in an international supranational body that clearly, even if Scotland wasn't in the European Union, would still have make significant decisions. It would affect Scotland. Um, so there was that argument. We also see in the 1980s the SNP becoming much more inclined to support. The very notion of devolution in the 1970s it was quite split it did actually vote to to support the devolution proposals in the 1970s but it was a very close margin throughout the 1980s the old uh, fundamentalist gradualist debate within the party became largely solved and then certainly solved in the 90s and then with devolution itself um because devolution was clearly a popular option amongst the Scottish public, and so it would have been silly for the SNP to not sort of be behind that. And up-and-coming elites in the party at the time, such as your your, your Alex Salmons and your Swinneys and whatnot, um, were very much of that, that gradualist position. And the whole idea as well, that if Scotland was part of the European Union, then it wouldn't be isolated in the world, that it would be joining uh, a, a body of countries, a body of nations, a body of states, and could take part within that union um, as, a, as, a, as a free and full member of that union. And, and, it, and um, it's no coincidence that support for independence sort of jumps, not jumps, but maybe the wrong word to use, but certainly increases gradually over time around that, that, that period to um, sort of a decent sustained level in the 1990s. Now, that obviously could, is, uh, could well be because of the, the nature of, of the UK government as well at the time with a cons- strong conservative majority under Thatcher and then under Major. Um, but the, the independence in Europe slogan would have certainly had a, a, a role to play in that for sure. And that uh, was that was something that that was uh, very much part of the, the rhetoric in 2014 at the time of the independence referendum. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that there was a boost uh, for independence around the time of the EU referendum, May last year. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but that's since tailed off. And to reflect mm-hmm. that tailing off, the SNP rhetoric on on the and Europe has tailed off. So, so what's what's changed among the Scottish electorate, specifically the SNP electorate? Why why have they taken their foot off the European pedal? I think the key reason um, is because Europe doesn't matter that much to people at the end of the day. I mean, that's, that's uh, there's nuances to that. 
Um, but if, if you go on Twitter and look at the Twitterati, it's the worst thing ever. You know, oh my goodness me, we're not going to be a European country anymore. And what does this mean? And surely means an independent Scotland. Actually, when it comes down to it, on the ground, on the doorsteps, people really don't care that much. It's not a hugely salient issue. Um, it is salient in the sense that it's high up the, uh, the list of, of issues at the moment and it's in people's faces, if you like. But I think that, you know, lots and lots of people out there are neither here nor there about whether or not Scotland or the UK is or isn't in the European Union. I think we can assume that the Labour Party are a com- completely defunct force uh, in, in Scotland, political <laughs> force now in Scotland. S&P, the dominant power, probably will remain so um, after the next uh, elections. But meanwhile, interesting things happening albeit on a relatively small scale, but still interesting things happening with the Scottish Conservative Party and Ruth Davidson's um, mm-hmm. popularity ratings are, are very high indeed. Yeah. Um, so is is the Conservative Party now the only viable, apart from real, real diehard Greens and Socialist Party voters and maybe a few Labour diehards as well, but for, for those who aren't the political diehards, is the, is the Scottish Tory Party really the only second option now and if if there is a surge in support for uh for the scottish tory party might that start to impact more on scotland being treated more equally in the eyes of the scots uh, might the westminster tory party perk up a bit let's say um and 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 start listening more to to voices north of the border well i think that's a really good point actually i think this um, the idea of Scotland having a, 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 a not a huge chunk of, of Scottish Conservatives. I mean, the the, the most uh, optimistic polling, uh, and then applying that polling to seat forecasts, has the Conservatives maybe winning twelve, um, and that's not a huge number of seats, especially if they get a a big majority. Um, but it's still, I think, you're right in saying that it would. Um, mean that the Scottish Conservatives are sending down a a small but not insignificant group of MPs to Westminster. Um, And one or two of these MPs may end up getting um, uh, important jobs, especially in in the Scottish office. The Scottish office would would therefore be able to be staffed, if you like, by uh, Scottish-based MPs and perhaps in other uh, government departments um, as well. Um, I think the Yes, the Labour Party are going to have a have a tough election. Um, I don't see how they can turn this around anymore. Um, so yeah, the SNP will continue to to dominate and actually probably make some significant gains in areas where Labour have traditionally been strong. What will be interesting is areas, uh, more rural areas, and that's a rule of thumb. I would say you know you, you, around the borders, Edinburgh, rural Perthshire, um, rural Aberdeenshire. Um, it will be really uh, interesting to see how well the, the, the Scottish Conservatives do in this play, in these places and whether they can uh, reflect their success that they had at the 2016 uh, Scottish election. And that's it for now. Thanks for listening and please share the podcast far and wide. I'll be back in June.